0: know that I am a very good preacher. So said my preaching professor, Steve Brown. Some of you may have listened to him on the radio or listened to conferences that he did. He said it only in a deeper and better voice than I, a voice that God gave him and then he made even better by chain smoking a pipe for 30 years. An amazing voice, but he would say this to his classes. He actually is a good preacher. He would say it to his classes because he was trying to redefine humility for us. He was doing what all sorts of spiritual masters have done over the years. He was trying to take a counterfeit notion, a notion of something that the Bible talks about as the most important thing for our lives with God and our lives on this planet. Humility is the soil where all kinds of spiritual vitality grows. It's the magnet that attracts the God who lives as the High and Holy One in a lofty place, but also dwells with the lowly and the contrite of heart. The God who is constantly saying that He opposes the proud and He gives grace to the humble. My professor was trying to help us see that humility isn't lying. It's not, as C.S. Lewis said in one place, pretty women saying that they're ugly and clever men saying that they're fools. That's some sort of game playing. That's not telling the truth. Humility isn't in some way thinking that you're just a big pile of something that might get stuck on the bottom of someone's shoe. Humility isn't just thinking less of yourself and thinking how horrible you are. But it could be said and has been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. And that's part of what our professor was trying to get us to see when he said, I need you to know that I'm a good preacher because he knew And what happens when you start to enter into a life of humility, which is all about what Paul's talking about here in this, what scholars call, the Christ hymn. As he holds Jesus up as a picture of someone willing to become nothing to elevate others. As he holds out this picture of a community that has been invaded by Christ and is therefore called to be preoccupied, but not preoccupied in the ways they normally are. Preoccupied with others and with God. Be like-minded if you've gotten any tenderness or compassion out of the deal of God treating you better than you deserve. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In a way, Paul is saying, would you please discount the advice of people who say, just be yourself. In some ways, of course, you have to be yourself. But in other ways, he's saying, please, please God, whatever you do, don't just be yourself. Because here's your natural preoccupation. You're all good at being preoccupied. But normally, you're preoccupied with how your interests are being held in threat. How someone might be about to take what's yours. How you might be on the verge of losing something that's precious to you. How someone isn't loving you as they ought. How someone hasn't regarded you as you thought they should have. How someone did not give you credit for something that was clearly your due. Paul knows that we are well skilled at self-meditation. No one has to teach us to think of ourselves regularly, robustly, and often. So he says, here is what humility is about. It is about preoccupation, only not preoccupation with you. Preoccupation with others. And humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, that's native, everybody does that. But also to the interests of others. And in saying that, he gives us what we could think of as a Christmas calling. It's a calling for all times. But when we think about God taking on our flesh, the apostle has ways of describing that that says, this is the imminent picture, the exemplar that I want you to think about. I want you to learn how to let it be the guide for how you manage your own internal thought life, how you process situations, how you think about what you're doing in the world. Look at this Jesus and what he did... He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And here's the picture. In big ways, we can say your calling is to embody this Jesus. This Jesus took on our body. He became what we are so that we can become what he is. We talked about that last week. But now Paul gets specific. And we'll say this first. First point of our calling. Be nothing. Or in other words, don't try to be God. Be nothing, or in other words, don't try to be God. Here's what he says about Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, Paul could summarize the whole affair of God stepping into, in many ways, the ditch of the world, where everything had gone awry, coming in disguise, where everyone had arms against him and everyone suspicious of him, where people are doing their own thing, where all that's good has been tainted and blown to smithereens in other ways. He could summarize that whole thing as God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. And Paul says your attitude should be the same. Be willing to be nothing. Do not try to be God. Now, I can imagine that some of you, when I say, do not try to be God, think, I don't try to be God. How do I try to be God? Let me tell you how you try to be God. Maybe you know. But, Let's think about this. Let's think about if you, as some people have theoretically done, I've seen this in movies, I've read about it in books, I've never actually experienced it in real life or seen it happen in a car or in a house or in any of you. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that you sometimes look on other people and find things wrong with them. Have you ever heard anyone criticize someone else? I know it's theoretical. There's a Peanuts cartoon where Linus, cute little Linus, is sitting on a couch. He's just reading a book. He's a little guy. He carries a blanket. And Lucy has this funny face as she stands behind him and says, it's very strange, she tells him. And he's like, what? She says, it just happens... Just by looking at you. And Linus says, what? What happens just by looking at me? And she says, just by looking at you, I feel a criticism coming on. (laughs) Now, my guess is that one of the ways, and Paul Tripp mentioned this, I think, in his marriage conference, even though I didn't hear it, someone told me about it. One of the ways that we try to be God And refuse to be nothing, is we let our pride, which is fundamentally an anti God state of mind, we let our pride put us in the position where we think it's our job to size everybody else up. And so we look at people who are not created in our image. They don't do things like we do. They don't think about things like we do. They don't regard punctuality the way we do. They don't regard cleanliness the way you do. They don't regard work the same way you do. They don't regard pleasure the same way you do. And so generally, you take any kind of difference that the Creator has made, and you use it as an opportunity to destroy with criticism. And in that way, you try to be God. There's a lot of you here who are profoundly anxious, it's because you're wearing a mantle, that your puny little self, your tiny little mind, your strange inability to only be in one place at once, does not prepare you to handle. You're anxious because you think that you're God, and therefore that all the health and safety of your children, all the welfare of your work, all the financial security of your future, it all depends on on tiny, 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 did I say tiny? Little you. Jack Miller said, usually our negativism, he didn't say it that way, he said it better. But he said it in a book, so he may have muffed when he said it publicly. Usually our negativism, this tendency to be negative, to be the world's critic, Usually, our negativism is rooted in our feeling superior to other people. That's another word for pride. That's an antinam for humility. Our negativism is rooted in our feeling superior to people and rejecting the government of God in our lives. If you want to know some kind of relief, you want to have the pressure off, you want to have fears removed... The Bible says you got to be nothing. God is attracted, magnetically drawn to nothing. Because you know what he does with nothing? He fills it up. Empty hands, he puts stuff in. Empty hearts, he resources. See, that's how people are created. They're created to be dependent on God. Even Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, he made himself nothing, he took on the form of a servant. He says all these ridiculous things that if you heard them today, if you heard grown men saying these things, you would accuse them of being codependent. I can do nothing except what my father does. The only thing, food for me, is doing what my father wants. I only want what he wants. Jesus, a man of sorrows, knew joy. Joy that he wanted to impart to his disciples because he knew what it was like to move not in competition with, but in concert with God. This is what humanity is. Men and women and children. We were made to move in concert with God. Not to be in competition with him. And so one of you has got to get smaller. Let me suggest. Don't try to be bigger than the one who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And all its inhabitants look like grasshoppers to him. That's one of the ways the psalmist describes it. Be little. So that he can be big. Big. You might have heard me say before that in the past, when I was in seminary in Orlando, I hope you don't have to live there. No, it was fine. I worked out at this place called the World's Gem. It was near the seminary. We got a discount from there, and yes, I did used to work out. And one of the interesting things about the World's Gem is that Orlando is a place where there are a lot of glistening people, muscly and glistening and tan. The sun's shining all the time, and it's, I think it's a it's a Florida law that you must be in it and you must absorb it and you must be much darker than I am. One of the things that would happen in this little box in a strip mall was that they would play this music. Be afraid of the darkness. And they would do this, and it would recalibrate your heartbeat. It would be like a pacemaker kind of situation. It would rattle your soul. And they made sure there were mirrors everywhere that your eye could look. And this was because there was another rule there. The larger your muscles the smaller your clothes had to be. <laughs> if you had huge biceps, you were not allowed to wear anything less than a tank top. If you had great glutes, you better be wearing something skin tight. And when you lifted, you needed to make sure that you could see yourself at every angle. And that everybody else could see your glory too. Nobody would conceal their glory. They were all trying to get more glory. To get huge. Huge. There were women there bigger than me. (laughs) And you know what's interesting about that is it's a good picture of the kind of way that we live. We think it's up to us, if we've done something good, if we have something good, if we've made something good, to make sure that we get proper credit for it. Metaphorically speaking, to make sure, if you got it, sister, flaunt it. But you know what? Jesus, we're told, the prime example, the most beautiful human. Almost everybody in every religion at any time who isn't threatened by him would say Jesus' life was a beautiful one. He was God. And he covered up. He didn't show off his muscles. He concealed his glory. He became a servant. Nobody wants to become a servant. You've heard me say before perhaps that I think Hendrickson said this, everybody, at least Christian people, would like to be defined as a servant, but nobody wants to be treated like one. Servants sometimes don't get proper thanks. Servants sometimes do things for other people, that's all they do. Their job is to serve somebody else. It's in the name. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. That's what leadership is. That's what greatness is in his kingdom. It's people who live for the interests of others, who are preoccupied with the concerns of others. And it's not just sadistic on Jesus' part. He knows that's where life comes. He knows that's how you were made to run. That when you live on a steady diet of yourself... Like Narcissus, looking into the pool of water, feasting on himself. What a gorgeous fellow I am. I can't believe these cheek lines. Look at those eyes. My daddy must have been a thief to steal those stars and put them in my eyes. It's feeding on a steady diet of yourself, thinking about yourself, thinking about how you're perceived, how you are reckoned by other people. You starve on yourself. Jesus knows that life comes by being nothing and giving yourself away to others. Being concerned more about their interest than your own. So here's a, here's a practical consideration for getting at some of this humility, some of this nothingness. If you were inclined, and everybody in here to varying degrees is, to complaining, to being negative, to criticizing... You know everything that's wrong in the country. You know economically what's wrong. You know what's wrong with the poor. You know what's wrong with your husband. You know what's wrong with your wife. You know what's wrong with your kids. You don't know what's wrong with you. But you're quite clear about everybody else. Try this. Ask God if he won't help you to start seeing other people as his creation. And if you might start seeing good things in them that you could compliment or praise. Something happens when you start to notice good in others. It diminishes you. It feels like a threat to you because by nature we regard everyone as a competitor. That's what makes us the kind of people that walk into a conversation, have a conversation, leave the conversation, and think only, why did I say that? Do you think they misunderstood me? Did my hair look okay? You're not thinking about them. You're thinking about how they perceived you. You're thinking about what you did. You're not thinking about them. You're not taking them into yourself. We're always sizing things up. You've heard me mention perhaps before. And I want to throw this out because I think this is the dynamic that works in us all. Is that when I was especially new at this pastoring gig in the first five years, going to these presbytery meetings where they would Put these poor souls on the floor and examine them for their theological acumen, for their biblical knowledge, for their erudition and church history and finer things like book of church order, which you don't even know exists. And what would happen to me was this. Sometimes I would hear a guy, he was so poised. It's like he had internalized John Calvin. He was channeling Calvin. And so people would ask him questions. And he, he, I'm thinking, you should be nervous, dude. And he's like, well, Bob, that's a great question. Let me see if I can't answer it for you. And he answers it with a dissertation. And at the end, everybody gets up and claps. And you hear him and you think, wonder if they're taking applications at that Valvoline place. <laughs> because I can't do this pastoring gig. Maybe I'm in the wrong thing. That dude, I don't have what that dude has. See, because I'm thinking of him as a competitor. And my pride makes me do that. And so when I meet somebody who's better than me, you know what I do? I get dejected. But another thing happens sometimes too. Every now and again, I'd, get, I'd watch a guy, young guy, he'd start crying. He'd wet his pants. No, no. Nobody ever did that. I've never seen anybody cry. But you think, internally, dude, you are crying. Because they're eating your lunch. You act like you don't know nothing. You've frozen up. And you feel bad in a way, but then, I'm just being honest here, there's a little bit of you like, okay, I'm not that much of an idiot. Because <laughs> look at that guy. I didn't do that. I didn't cry on the stage. I answered all the questions. I didn't get an ovation. Well, you see, that's what happens to us. You find yourself, some of you are depressed. This isn't all of it, but some of you get really dejected when you're around certain kinds of people, you know why? It's just your pride. It's wounded. Because you think you're in competition with everybody and you think as a mother that you don't stack up. When you don't stack up, you feel dejected. And when you feel like you're better than another mother, you feel a little bloated. When you... Whatever thing you think it's important for you to be good at, at your work, athletics, politics, whatever it is that's your gig... It's precious to you. I guarantee you'll find some of that at work. You'll need to criticize people to put them in their place to help you feel better because your pride is nervous. Jesus became nothing. He didn't try to be God. When you become nothing, which is what humility is, when you let yourself be little, you know what happens? You start to recognize, hey all the greatness that's out there, and there's a lot of it to notice, it's all a tribute to the God who made it. There is no pioneering technological dude. There is no statesman. There is no amazing mother. There is no genius kid. There is no phenomenal athlete who is that apart from the kindness of God. Any magnificence that you notice is a fingerprint of the God who invented it all the things that you're threatened by in others they're gifts from God to those people not God's gift they're not God's gift God has gifted them and when we're humble when we say my calling is to be nothing it's to be concerned about others it's to be inebriated with God it's to be little so that he can fill me with his bigness you start to notice all over the place hey other people are not a threat to me They're all images of the Creator that I can esteem, that I can help, that I can bless with my words. I can speak, as Paul says, words that edify. Make it a habit to start trying to notice good things, especially if you're prone to only notice bad. If you only notice bad, make it a searching kind of question. Why is that? G.K. Chesterton in these Father Brown novels that were made into a 1974 BBC production or PBS production, that when I watch them, Kathy comes down and rolls her eyes. Is like, what are you watching? These British people in funny clothes, loud, weird scenes. But Father Brown is this detective, and you know what? He says, I'm able to solve all the crimes because I've already committed them in my heart. He understands depravity. He's not shocked by anything because he knows... As a humble person, he knows what he's capable of. He knows that he stands by grace. And there's this one scene where he solves this murder case. And before he solves it, he says this great line. He says, when you stand in high places and you look down on everything, everything looks really small. The farther you are away from any problem, the farther you are above any person, it's very easy to judge them. It's acting like God. But he says, down in the valley, down in the valley, things look huge when you look up. Humility is the mother of giants, he says. If you would be filled with wonder at Christmas, if you would be having your negativism rooted out of you, if you would be let off the hook from this terrible burden of always having to be seen as the best, of always having to be regarded as most exceptional, then make yourself nothing. Admit to God, I'm quite proud. I think of it as my job to critique everybody. It doesn't necessarily occur to me to critique myself. Let me be little so that your grace might flow down to me. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. And let me give you a way, as we've looked, don't be be nothing. Don't try to be God. Let me tell you one other implication of this, of this calling to repeat the incarnation. As Jesus drew near, he didn't stand far off. This, I guarantee you, if you make this a matter of prayer before the Lord each day, to come to him empty handed and say, Would you live your life through me? Would you help me to incarnate your ears and your eyes and your speech and your life? Which means, will you broker the life of Jesus through me in all my work and all my family relations? in all of my dealings, you know what's going to happen? It's going to change the way you think about everybody. Because people become not your competitor, they become someone who are the object of your love. So that means you have to listen to them. And if you listen to them, you have to take them into yourself. One of the things that I've noticed for us, for people like us, is one of the really hard things about this humility bit. is It's... It will affect the way that we treat the dirty and the unwashed and the poor. I can remember when we first moved out here, driving around one day, and I had this epiphany. I was noticing everywhere I drove, on trailers, on mobile homes, on big houses and small houses, everybody had a satellite dish, or a dish network, not a satellite dish. They had old satellite dishes, but those were defunct, and now they had the little ones. And I was thinking about this. Why do all of these people have satellite dishes? I mean, they got them on moving vehicles. they got them on guys that don't look like they can afford anything. And what I've also noticed, because I am primarily around middle class people, is that we kind of think that Jesus said, Blessed are the middle class in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But he doesn't say that. That's Tim Keller's word. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. But see, what happens when you're middle class in spirit as you tend to approach all situations and you think, you know what's wrong with the poor? Well, they don't work. They got cable TV. I don't have cable TV. How do they have a a big screen TV like that? Their TV's bigger than my TV. Well, they want help from us. And you know what I've realized? Is as I've gotten involved with some people's lives and as God has broken me in a lot of ways because I'm a very proud dude and I've got... He's, you know, 864 out of 865 parts, pride still to be undone. But what happens is you start to incarnate. You start to listen to other people. You start to walk in their shoes. You start to realize, because this is what happens. Anybody who starts to encounter the grace of God, they realize how God found them. They realize, wow, there's nothing impressive about me. Everything I have has been received from heaven. God giving me most when I deserve it least. He's entrusted things to me. Why should he? I don't know. Why didn't he smite me? I don't know. He's kind. What did I do to get to be born in the family I got to? What did I do to get to be going to the schools that I got to? What did I do to get to have the gifts that I have and the job that I have and the family that I have? What did I do to have friends? God gave me gifts. And when I listen to certain people, and I start to take them into myself, And you've experienced this too. And I realized, hey, what would it be like if I worked every day, ten hours a day, and no matter how hard I worked, I was going to make $400 a week. And no matter how hard I worked, if the transmission went out on the truck, I was sunk. If my kid got sick, I might have to miss work, I might miss my job. Would I want to come home and drink beer? Lots. And if my life was surrounded with ugliness... If I had grown up in a home where if you messed up, you got hit in the face, or you learned, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you can't control your environment. You can't. You can't get ahead. If that was the lesson I learned, would I think differently about anything? Would I have some hope issues to work out? Would I have some authority issues, some shame stuff to get over? If my life was filled with ugliness, would I want to have a big screen TV where pretty people and pretty lives, some little approximation of glory came into my living room to help me forget? It reminds me of King Lemuel's mother's advice. It's not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine and rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees, but give beer to the perishing. This is the Bible. Wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now, I don't think this is, you know, fundamental economic development principles. (laughs) But it's a recognition that we quickly, as soon as we have something more than somebody else, we think we're better than somebody else. And what, if we are to fulfill our calling... Whether it's with your spouse, with your child, with your employee, you've got to draw near. That's what God did. He didn't stay up above the circle of the earth with the inhabitants looking like grasshoppers. The farther you are away from a problem, the easier its solution seems. Mr. Richard Pratt used to tell us: facts up, fuzz up. The closer you get to something, the more complicated it becomes. The closer you get to lives the more you take another life into yourself, you start to think like they do, you start to think, what would it be like to have lived like this, to have your days be like this? You may not get a solution, but you get compassion. And you realize that they and I are people who stand in need of a cross to forgive us. We stand in need of a God to fill us and change us because we have no hope otherwise. We are called to be preoccupied with others and God, not ourselves. The first step for that, of course, is just admitting how preoccupied we are with ourselves. We're called to be nothing so that God can be God. We're called not to stand far off, but to draw near, to incarnate, to put the shoes of others on as our Savior did. So that we can embody him in our words and in our deeds. So that his delight will spread throughout this earth. I hope we'll do it this Christmas. Amen.